Most people listen to podcasts to learn something, to be entertained and to walk away feeling inspired, perhaps even educated a bit. Hello, I'm Devo and I'm one of the two hosts of our show, The Little Impolite Podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. This show is for the expansive, open-minded, creative, whose persistent curiosity towards integrating new information in their lives never stops. Think of it as the free thinker's toolkit for anyone that refuses to enroll in the conformity of all of those around them, instead forging their own paths with fortitude and love. It's that slightly unapologetic conversation with that new friend you just met that sort of wistfully and effortlessly pushes the conversation into spaces that you never expected. It's the deep-hearted conversations with purposeful and thoughtful individuals that have finally figured out their superpowers and are now pouring into it with gusto and love. We're delighted to host these conversations with you that lead us down the conversation well. But watch your step, because most of our guests, and of course, Lisa and I, are a little impolite. All right, welcome to the Little Impolite Podcast. We have not done a guest show in a few weeks, so this is our mm-hmm. first show back. This is, I think, Dr. Kate, this is your, our first show with a live guest in, what, three or four episodes? Mm-hmm. So excited to have you on. We, we really love talking to guests. And the one we have today is a little bit different from our general conversations. It's something that's been near and dear to everyone's hearts. And we're going to talk to Dr. Kate Ballastieri about, she's a licensed psychologist and a licensed sex therapist. And you and I have put together a bevy of questions of things that we're genuinely interested in. Neither of us ever had a real sex talk before from our parents, so you're going to give it to us today. So have you prepared that? (laughs) Um, I haven't, but the way you just sort of built that up, I'm going to give it to you. Sounds like you've already had the sex talk. (laughs) All right. So you have a you have a bio and a resume that is quite lengthy. So I'm going to paraphrase Mm -hmm. it to the best of my ability. But you are a licensed psychologist and a certified Mm -hmm. sex therapist um, in sex addiction, sex addiction. And you have offices in Miami, Los Angeles, Chicago, and there was a fourth city, I recall. New York and in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Man, so you're doing big things, obviously. (laughs) How does one become a sex therapist? Um, we go to school for a really long time. So once someone becomes a mental health professional, a licensed provider, then they go for additional schooling and additional supervision. The whole process takes definitely no less than a year and a half, but it can take upwards of two and a half years or three years, depending on how quickly somebody goes through it. I want to learn more about how you got into that, but but before we get into that, we're going to finish your insanely large resume. (laughs) So you are a contributor for Poosh, which you introduced me to that. You want to talk a little bit about Poosh's because I didn't know that before you. It's all the things that you need to know as a woman. Okay, perfect. Um, (laughs) You're a contributor for Psychology Today, which I do know. I actually read that quite regularly. And the House of Wise, which is a big deal. So you've got a massive resume of credentials. So the knowledge that you're going to drop to us today is really going to be stimulating, and I'm really excited to hear about it. But um, by and large, so who you are is you help people navigate the intersection of mental health, relationships. It's not just sex. It's the intertwining of psychology and trauma and PTSD and how people's context build their lives and relationships and all those sorts of things. You sort of brought them all together. That's right. That's right. Really helping people understand how their relationship with their own mental health, their relationship with relationships, and then, of course, their relationship with with sexuality all sort of um, are integrated, connected, and how to make sense of all of that. Because I think a lot of us keep most of those things pretty compartmentalized in our minds, but they're, in fact, intertwined in a way that is really impactful. 
Is the repression of sex in general a an American thing in your experience? Because, you know, we travel the world and people dress differently, people talk differently, people act differently in other countries than they do in America. Have, have you ever done any studies around that or do you have any experience around that and why it is the way it is here in America? Well, certainly our different cultural contexts play a large role into the relationship and the envisioning that we have as sexual beings. And there are some cultures that are even more compartmentalized and rigid around sex than Americans are. And then there are some cultures that are super integrated and have a very healthy relationship with sex um, as a culture. And so I, I would say we're probably somewhere closer to the rigid side, but certainly in the middle, you know, uh, you know, I, I have, I'd have to look at what the numbers say on that, but hmm. we have a complicated really relationship with sex. Yeah. And especially, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but the context and the delivery of everything that we bring to relationships and the mm-hmm. baggage that we carry and how that affects us, not only in relationship, but in our sex lives and in our interpersonal mm-hmm. relationships, with our partners or lack thereof, et cetera. Um, and Lisa and I are actually reading a book that uh, together right now, I kind of beat her to it a little bit. Yeah. So I'm holding out for her to catch up so we can have discussion. But um, Neil Strauss, he's a writer for Rolling Stones. And he wrote a book called Trust, I believe is the, the, oh, the truth, the truth, the truth. Sorry. Mm. Yeah, the truth. And are you familiar with this book? I haven't read it yet. Uh, it's a phenomenal read. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sort of the byline around the book is the baggage that we carry and based upon our upbringing and what our parents mm-hmm. taught us and what our parents told us about sex or lack thereof or, mm-hmm. or how they behave sexually with their partners and our observational tendencies that we take on and how we replicate those in our own lives. And so um, a lot of the conversation, I think at least some of the questions that I have are centered around that baggage that we carry because Lisa and I both have very distinct backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And and what role those distinct backgrounds played into the first partners that we chose and and in, in our in our relationships and sort of where we are now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. The, and the question that he came up with in the, in that book too is is a question that I would love to ask you as well at some point. Is is there such thing as monogamy? Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, you want me to answer that now? Why not? <laughs> We're just going to jump right in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there are many different relational constructs. And some people would argue that biologically we're not hardwired for monogamy. Other people would say that we absolutely are when it comes to the evolutionary strategy of being committed and um, incurring a parental investment in any children that we we bring forward into the world. So I think that what's important for people to understand is that because human beings are incredibly diverse, there are going to be people for whom monogamy is the only way to be. And they really value that and it's important to them and it is their sense of security and it can be very healthy. And then there are other folks for whom monogamy doesn't fit and they find it to be stifling or oppressive or deadening even. And it's completely okay and healthy to pursue ethical non-monogamy. You know, when we are intentional and communicative and shore up each other's needs with appropriate boundaries and conversation, there really is a ton of room, you know, for people to have the kind of relational structure that makes sense for them. And it might change over the lifespan. You know, we're not static beings. I love that answer. You know, and there's important details like when you're talking about boundaries and communication. Do you 
Do you think that the context or that paradigm of people's idea of monogamy that works for them and maybe not for me is solely based upon the context of their their learned and contextual behaviors? And consequently, if they were exposed to something alternative to that, that their paradigm would then henceforth change? I think so. Yeah. I mean, look, we we are, again, we are epigenetic creatures, meaning that our genetic possibilities are expressed in different ways, depending on what we're exposed to in life. And the, the culture that we're born into, the ideas that we are told as truths, shape a huge part of how we see our own identity and our membership in different groups that we belong to. So our our group, meaning our family of origin, our extended family, our local community, our extended community, our ethnicity, our religious groups, all the things, all these groups that we belong to have different codes and, and agreements that they make as part of being in that group. So we're not just contending with genetics here. We're contending with a lot of psychological needs around belonging. And that unconsciously shapes the way people see their own identities. And that includes their relational identity and sometimes their sexual identity, not to be confused with sexual orientation, which we are born with. You did a post uh, very recently that kind of talks about our past shapes our present. And that just mm-hmm. that just hit home to me. And I think there's so many things. We had talked oh, quite a while ago, so you probably don't remember, but I was um, married and 30 years more married into being a Mormon. And when you're talking about that, that just rings so true about wanting to belong and to conform and to um, not be judged and to fit into what their norm is and what you're supposed to be doing to be accepted and mm-hmm. whatever the patriarchy is and what you're told to do. <laughs> acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I really appreciate you sharing that. And, and I think, what I'm hearing is that there probably was a lot of contending that you had to do in understanding what actually was your own truth and what were your own values. And when people start asking those questions, they usually bump up against a lot of friction because when you start questioning what is the norm of a group, you immediately run the risk of being ostracized from that group. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so people have to make that choice. Am I true to myself or am I true to the group? I want to go back to that epigenetic term that you dropped a few minutes ago. So, so basically, uh, and, and I'm very familiar with that term now. Lisa and I are both reading uh, Dr. Joe Dispenza, which is sort of, mm. you know, I don't know if he's the godfather of epigenetics, but I know he talks a lot about it. Um, but, but basically, just if I can recap that for some people who are not familiar with that term, it basically means that you're not stuck where you are because you can genetically, on a cellular level, cellular level, modify not only your behavior, but your outcomes based upon that. That's sort of a good recap for that. I mean, I, I think that we have certain limits within our genetic possibilities, um, but but there, uh, I'm not a geneticist, so I'll leave that to them to answer that big question. But certainly we have a lot more power than we think we do mm-hmm. when it comes to changing behavior and changing outcomes when we start changing the way we think and really challenging these sort of old, um, you know, f- hand-me-down belief systems is what I'll call them, right? And we grow up thinking that the way the people around us act and think is sort of our first paradigm. And it's not until we start challenging that, if we do, that we realize we can develop more possibilities. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, just what you're saying is just, again, it's just ringing so true that you realize it's like baby's day out. There's a big, big <laughs> world out there of things that you've never experienced. And why didn't I partake of this? Because it's it's life-changing. It's good. It's joy. It's not, you know, I'm not going to be burning in hell. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> well, well, can we Can we go down that pathway for a little bit with you? Okay. So just for the purpose of the podcast, kind of, and I know we had an, an, uh, an initial conversation with Dr. Kate about this, but talk a little bit about your upbringing around sex or lack thereof and your parental involvement and then sort of where that led you or the choices that you made. Because I, I want to, I do want to, and I'm going to share mine for, so we're equal here. Um, <laughs> I want to hear Dr. Kate's, we, I genuinely want to hear your feedback because we both came from, um, I don't, I hate the word failed marriages, but we both had our first go at marriage and it didn't work out. Um, we, we made the choice to leave that for, for a variety of reasons. Um, mm-hmm. Sex is one of those pieces for me in that space. And I think it is for you as well. No, diff- monogamy was mine. I That's thought, what I'm saying, I but at a different was, level. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but at the core of it, it was I'm sex. sorry, I didn't realize this was open. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was an unethical, non-monogamous situation. Yeah, I, you know, yeah. there were no boundaries, no communication. Mm-hmm. I think that's so. Again, what well, you're saying, check, check, check. Well, yeah. well, paint, can you just sort of paint a picture a little bit, real quickly, like a recap of your early years and where where it led? If you um, don't mind. Long story short, I think I married my father. <laughs> You're not a therapist. Let her give that to you. <laughs> so a lot of similarities there. <laughs> um. I got married at a very young age because, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't know that was that was the opportunity. Somebody asked me to marry them and you're like, oh, okay, okay, we're friends. That's great. Um, converted over, became Mormon, um, had a lot of rules, regulations, a lot of shame, a lot of a lot of things that if you if you didn't believe or go with it, there's a lot of um shame as far as well then you don't have faith and mm-hmm. if you don't have faith so there was just just a lot of power misusage mm-hmm. i would say um and a lot of patriarchal uh bullshit um <laughs> that every time there was a um misdemeanor as far as as someone having an extracurricular affair i was told that it's okay he's man and mm-hmm. you know if you don't forgive him then your sin is worse and blah 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 all that stuff so mm. um it just came to like the, the last time that it was like you know what i think someone's trying to tell, tell me something so um and that's kind of long story short which is interesting because that comes on the heels of a post you just did a, a few days ago on on the structures and the rigidity around religion and mm. and sort of the accountability and conditional logic that's associated with it but mm-hmm. I, i'm i'm really curious about before she responds to that how your parental upbringing might have affected the decisions that you made to marry early, or maybe it didn't. It's just coincidental. Um, it was just, it was just that there wasn't really a lot of um, communication as to here's, here's all of the opportunities that you have. And the, I would say the role that my parents displayed in front of me wasn't, wasn't really open, loving, um, intimate, romantic, sexual, um, joined together as partners or anything like that so there wasn't really uh, a great example in front of me can i just blame everyone else instead of me (laughs) they forced me to say yes (laughs) i 
I had a, a professor in grad school who, in a very thick German accent, used to say, it is very sexy to blame the parents. <laughs> and I think that's true. You know, I think that's very true. Um, and and it's easy for us to blame our parents, but also they, they do shape so much of our reality when we're young. And it isn't until we start getting older and have a lot of our own experiences that we can start becoming more conscious of why we want the things we want or why something is or is not a good fit or healthy for us. So, you know, it's, it's easy to blame the parents. And then at some point, you know, we take accountability for ourselves and start doing the work to change the patterns that were, that were handed down to us. Mm-hmm. So I keep trying to ask this question, but I'm not getting it answered. So <laughs> does our, does our upbringing and the way our, cause our parents were marvelously different. My father was abusive. He abused, I'm one of 12 kids and her, she's one of two children, mm-hmm. an older sister. Yeah. Does any, is there any, is there any patterns or any relational symbiosis between how she was raised by her parents versus the original initial choice that she made at her young age of, was, was it 17 when you first began? 19. 19. Does that, is there a correlation between how she was raised and what she got herself into for 30 years? I mean, I, I don't know you, so I, I don't know what kind of personal development work you did before that. But the, the, the painful reality is that our earliest relationships create an imprinted um, experience on our nervous systems. And it is that imprint that shapes how we define love. So whether that includes abuse or kindness or absentee experiences, more neglect, we tend to gravitate toward what feels familiar and we experience that as love, even if we wouldn't have consciously chosen it to be that way. So there's that coupled with all kinds of societal expectations and, um, you know, uh, membership in those groups again, right? We want to belong to, to something and somehow, and sometimes marriage gives us permission to leave one group and join another or it gives us an exit out of something that we didn't know how to leave otherwise. So I think there are a lot of different reasons why we choose the things we choose, but unconsciously there is a huge undercurrent of um, just, I guess, what will I say, uh, automation in terms of how we end up with the partners that we end up with. And then we get to sit there and reevaluate if we want to stay there once we're there. That's interesting that you say that because there's a direct resemblance to how a lot of people, how a lot of us, especially, I know I did early on in my life, lived my life. I just sort of kind of just went through the motions. I didn't mm. really, I didn't really have any aptitude or forethought or self-awareness around where I went to college, for example. I just thought, you know, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to go to college, get my degree, take a job, work for 50 years, retire, live in my house with my white picket fence and two mm-hmm. kids and one dog. And I think most people sort of get stuck in that space. So mm-hmm what I heard you say is that the choices we make for our partners are sort of in that same vein. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We end up picking people who are either familiar with others in our family, right? Some of their characteristics might resemble a parent or an older sibling, um, or they resemble aspects of ourselves, right? We pick what is familiar and even if it's something that's super uncomfortable, right? We're going to gravitate toward that until we get to learn our own triggers and predispositions and vulnerabilities to patterns that don't serve us. 
So if you had a really healthy childhood with parents who were well attuned to you and you got most of your needs met most of the time, you're probably going to pick a partner who resembles that because that was your earliest template for love. And if you had parents who were working really hard and not really emotionally available, but you had food on the table and shelter and clothes every year, you're probably going to find another partner who meets some of those basic needs, but who you don't necessarily have a strong emotional connection with. So some people kind of repeat blindly and they go forward in their life. They don't really question a lot and it actually works for them. And then a lot of people will say like, hmm, I think I married my dad, <laughs> right? There's a reason that we feel that way. It's because we usually pick people who are familiar to us. Um, and, and then they start questioning and going, ah, oh, this doesn't really feel right anymore. I want something different. I'm done with this script. I love that. And I think, you know, again, it, it, I was in that relationship. I am, I am to blame. Absolutely. I stayed that long and kept repeating the same cycle. And at some point you decide not to be a people pleaser. And when you get past that, you start figuring out what you like. That's so enlightening. It's, it's just, and maybe it came with age too, because I'm at that age now. I'm in my fifties. So it's like, mm, not going to do that because I don't want to, <laughs> but this I enjoy. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of people don't have that self-awareness or, or a lot of people get to that point where they realize they're unhappy, right? But they don't mm-hmm. do anything about it and they just sort of stay in that pattern because it's familiar to them. They don't have to step outside. They don't want to ruffle any feathers, et cetera. And uh, it harkens back to, I, I had a, when I chose to get divorced and I'm going to be relatively candid in what I share with you um, because I think it will be helpful for some people. I had a lot of friends who went against me for getting divorced. Mm-hmm. And 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 most of them were men who it turns out didn't have the courage to do the same thing because they were also equally unhappy. And I'll, I'll I'm going to use an example of one man in particular who was a very close friend of mine. What's his name? <laughs> he was a very close friend of mine and he, he sort of organized an intervention with me. Mm. And his his master argument, his master key argument was that I had kids who were very young mm-hmm. at the time, five and two, in fact, and that I was going to be messing up their life for the rest of mm-hmm. their lives. And, and in turn, I turned to him and he, he, had, he and his wife had not slept together by his own confession in over five years. Mm-hmm. They had separate bedrooms. They drove separately to their children's events. When we'd be at their house with my partner, they would not talk, not touch, not engage. There was zero relationship whatsoever. Yeah. And I asked him, well, many times, like, why are you staying in this relationship? And he would always say it's for the kids. And my argument was, wouldn't it be healthier for your children to see not only that you were independent and brave enough and courageous enough to step into your own power into the, into the unknown, but simultaneously, wouldn't you want your children to see you in a relationship, either self-loving yourself or in a relationship with someone, a partner that you actively respected, adored, loved, engaged with, kissed, touched, loved. Like, wouldn't you want to model those behaviors for your children? So I I don't know that I'm right or wrong. It doesn't really matter where we are where we are now today. But I guess my question to you is, do you have an opinion on that space as it pertains to divorce, as it pertains to pursuing what makes us happy, especially if children are involved? I mean, I, I, I think it's dangerous to speak in sort of ab- absolutes, but one of the things that I will say is that children are sponges and they learn so much about how to be loved 
by the way they see their parents being loved and interacting with each other. So when there are relationships with so much deadness in them, children absorb that. Remember that imprint, right? So they will migrate likely towards something similar if they remain kind of in that automated state. And it's one of the ways that we pass down intergenerational trauma is by not taking steps to make changes. So the research actually supports that children do fare better um, when their parents divorce and when they can see their parents happy and thriving. Now, there might be some families where there's sort of a, a muted interaction. It's not conflictual, but there's a lot of low vitality or deadness. You know, who's to say if those kids would fare better in that environment or if their parents were happy or otherwise, if they got divorced and it was high conflict, that would not be a better outcome. But, you know, every family is a little bit different and they've got to make those decisions for themselves. But typically, children thrive when they see their parents authentically happy and doing well. Yeah, there are probably a lot of other subtleties and nuances that go into that, aren't there? Mm-hmm. So uh, just this is just sort of off the cuff. As you were talking, it sort of dawned on me. You talked about intergenerational trauma. Did that have anything to do with you yourself and the career path you chose? Did, did you have experiences as a youngster <laughs> with parents that caused some sort of intergenerational trauma and you were self-aware enough to realize, I want to go into this profession to actually help people avoid this sort of thing? Is that sort of how you got into it? Is there a story around that? Well, I mean, there are so many stories, but um, yeah, I, I would say my family, much like every other family, has a lot of intergenerational um, traumas and a lot of, uh, in my family in particular, there, there were a lot of unprocessed and unresolved, untreated traumas that resulted in in a lot of uncomfortable dynamics. And I don't think I could have articulated it back then, but definitely I was I was sort of the only one who was holding up my megaphone saying, hey, you guys, the emperor's not wearing any clothes. And <laughs> no one wanted to see my point of view on this. Um, you know, when when there's unresolved trauma, that can really keep people very stuck and very self-protective um, and very protected in their family systems. So um, it definitely was a, a source of motivation for me to go on and understand why people do the things that they do. and. Um, and it's, I'm so glad I did. You know, I've learned so much and have healed a lot of the things that were passed down to me. Hmm. Were, you, were you, did you come from a large family? Um, I don't know. It depends on how you define large. I'm one of three siblings. Um, and I think uh, my parents come from a sibship of four and three. Mm-hmm. So well, medium size. So... Both Diva and I, using us as examples, are coming into, uh, because we're in a relationship right now, we're coming into it from totally different um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) polar opposites. So I was very um, controlled. If we're talking about sex, we're told, you know, missionary style, that's it, you know. Mm -hmm. And and as we talk, there's, there's a lot of repression there. We know within certain religious norms there's there's a lot of mm-hmm. pornography and a lot of things that are going on behind closed doors but as long yeah. as this is what we see it's okay mm-hmm. um and diva was coming from what would you say in my marriage in your marriage i i was in an open relationship and 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 i we can talk about how we got into that space so yeah can carry on so for us coming into a relationship together how would you how would you 
counsel uh, a couple as far as communication, setting up boundaries, coming into a relationship um, and setting it up for success. Because I know that honestly, when, when I got married, there was no, there's no conversations about this. And I think a lot of people get into relationships without saying, you know, this is what I'm expecting. This is what I'm, I'm hoping to, to achieve. This is what I like sexually. This is what I like in a home. This is what I'm thinking for a family, like those conversations. So I I think sometimes we go into things blindly. So what would you suggest as far as going into a relationship and what your expectations or your boundaries or your communication should be? I mean, I think everything that you just laid out is a really important framework for couples to talk about. I I mean, it's really key that you talk about things like how you handle conflict, um, what are your spiritual perspectives, and even if your religious ideologies are different, if you are religious, um, how important is that to both of you and how you respect each other's different practices same thing with parenting. If you have children from a previous marriage, how are you going to handle the third that is your ex-partner and conflicts there? Um, you know, people do go into relationships thinking that love is enough. And then when the limerence fades and they move into more of an attachment period in their long-term relationship, they really struggle with how to have the kind of healthy dynamic that they're looking for because we're not taught these skills in school. You know, we're not taught to be strong communicators. We're taught to win an argument. Uh We're we're taught to defend ourselves. We're not taught to be empathic or to learn how to co-regulate and help our partners de-escalate when they get um, amplified or dysregulated. And those are the skills that really help partners create a sound and secure functioning relationship. Mm, there's so many gems in what you just said. <laughs> Deamplify. Oh my gosh. Yes. You did she did drop some big words there. Limerick. I got that I like that one. <laughs> the second time I've ever heard that one. Um, I want to build on that question. So two people, different backgrounds, polar opposites, different contexts in terms of what we what we know about sex, how our parents behaved and patterned for us, et cetera, but in relationship in general. When two people come together, what is if you had to pick sort of some keynote advice that you would give people as it pertains to not only the psychology, but the sex relationship with couples, different contexts, different backgrounds, different fantasies, different ideals, different expectations. How do two people from completely different backgrounds bridge those gaps? Well, I like how you try to pull the psychology out of that, but we can't, <laughs> right? Even the sex that just is, that is just sex comes from some sort of psychological need and has a psychological component to it. So what I would say is that what's more important than having exactly the same erotic template is how you're going to negotiate together and honor each other's limits and be curious with each other about what different needs represent for you? What itch does it scratch? You know, one person's power play fantasy might have a very different meaning than someone else's. But when you learn about your partner's underlying attachment to different erotic needs or templates or expressions, you can get a lot more curious and creative in problem solving. So that even if you know, your partner's fetish around XYZ doesn't really ring your bell, maybe you can tweak it and do something that is, you know, slightly different, but that both of you can enjoy, and it does meet the same need. 
So I think it's really important to approach each other from a place of non-judgment and from a place of really trying to understand each other, because I think we have so much meaning about sex that's overcoupled with our identities. And when we start to realize that the way we are sexual and the things that we like is absolutely unrelated to our worth as human beings, then we can sort of look at this as just a behavioral expression. And it's more about play. And sex becomes a bit of like an adult sandbox. (laughs) So you might like this shovel and pail and your partner might like that shovel and pail. But if you take turns and you build the sandcastle together, there's room for all of the different kinds of play that you can come up with. Do you find when you're counseling couples that are there specifically for sex therapy with you that I'm assuming people don't generally just open right up to you, right? So how do you break down the communication barriers with couples so that they're more excitable and more open to to share things with you so that they can learn to share with each other? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, one of the things that I try to do in my work with couples is get them talking to each other, not me. Right. I don't need people to triangulate me in their process because they already know how to not talk to each other effectively. Mm. So a big part of the work that I do in the moment is helping them practice how to have different conversations with each other so they can decide what works and what doesn't as they try on different interventions, different forms of communication. But more importantly than any that anything that we say is how we say it and how we interpret each other's nonverbal behavior. And the commitment that we make to having conversations dedicated around keeping each other free from being dysregulated, or I shouldn't say free from dysregulation, that's not really possible, but helping our partner get regrounded or reactivated if they're if they do get dysregulated. Because once we're in that sort of triggered state, nothing productive happens in a conversation. So that's really the the beef of the work that I do is helping people recognize each other's cues and be more productive in having regulated conversations instead of getting defensive and have watching the whole conversation become a you know a fruitless endeavor. I'm gonna embarrass you for a second. Is that okay? That's interesting. <laughs> watching watching your, no, I love what you said there, watching your partner's cues because um you red face already. <laughs> we're going to roll play here, Doc. You're going to roll play oh, no. for us, okay? So I recently learned, and, and this is uh, making me sound like an idiot, but so at my own discretion, I let this go. Um, I recently learned that Lisa had liked something that I had not known in the first couple of years in our relationship with her. And, and, and the only reason I noticed it is I started kind of paying attention one day to her cue as she just said that she was <laughs> on his cues hello <laughs> but i never knew that i never knew that, that was something that she was really partial to mm. Which, i'm not going to go detail there graphic <laughs> you're already really red but that's funny because a lot of the times when we get ourselves into trouble in any type of relationship even with my kids i've noticed that i'm not paying attention to their cues yeah. they're saying something or they're demonstrating something, but that's a really good lesson for everybody. If we can be more attentive and empathetic to other people's cues that they're giving off, there's so much behavioral patterns we can learn about them. Absolutely. Can I just say when it, when it involves. Oh, you wanted to go ahead and say it. it No, no. (laughs) It's a safe space. I'll say it. I have no problem saying it, but you know, we're so vulnerable in those situations that we, you know, our self-confidence is, is kicked down and then we're, 
we're remembering that and we're we're seeing it or hearing it in a different way. The story that we're telling ourselves or whatever is totally different than what was meant. But we can take that and become passive aggressive or never open up that yeah. way. And we just don't want to be hurt and we create something around us. So yeah, that's that was like 30 years of marriage for me. Like that's detrimental. So mm-hmm. Love what you're saying. Well, that's Gosh. detrimental in any standard. Like if you yes. just bottle everything up yes. over and over and you never let go, it's a bound to just explode in some Im- impolite way, in some way, shape, or yeah. form, a damaging way. Yeah. But if you mm-hmm. have that, like we, when we're in that situation, we're usually laughing our asses off because we've done something really dumb or it's funny or in the moment, it's not that serious of what we're doing. We do have a funny sex life. We do. It is pretty funny. There's a lot of laughter going on. (laughs) (laughs) At our our own expense. There's a lot of names for things that we do. (laughs) What do you call that? (laughs) All right. So back to serious for a second. You said something early, and I'm going down a completely different rabbit hole here. You said something earlier in the conversation about um, the, the religious dogma and the backdrop of, of everything that sort of set the precedent for how you lived your life for 30 years. Well, simultaneously to that, there was a double standard because he was out having extramarital affairs night and day. And and, and on top of that, pornography was a big factor. Mm-hmm. And and I, I was reading a stat the other day, maybe it was from your, um, one of your Instagram posts. I was going back and doing some uh, research on you. Maybe it wasn't. Forgive TikTok, me. she's big on TikTok too. Yeah, but I was reading somewhere recently that porn, porn, pornography usage is up like it's like some god awful number percentage, like ten thousand percent, just in the last ten years alone. It's like some crazy number. So, and then just sort of a few days later, I saw um, the metaverse is now testing virtual virtual sex, where you can basically design your own sexual avatar, and then you can put on this pair of goggles and you can go do whatever you do with your sexual partner. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I think we sort of understand it, but. What is the damaging and long-term effects of pornography and then this sort of virtual, this virtual relationship that seems to be being created everywhere around it? This is a really political question. Um, and there are a lot of um, strong and different views on that, even within the field of psychology and the, the providers in different camps of belief. Um, my thoughts on it are this, uh, alcohol by itself, right. Is not a problem. Someone's relationship to alcohol is what constitutes whether it can be a healthy thing in their life or an unhealthy thing in their life. I feel the same way about porn and other erotic mediums, right? They've been around since the dawn of time, you know, ever since there were humans, there's been pornography because we are sexual beings. So that porn has taken different iterations and different forms over the millennia. And what we're seeing now is, you know, a a shift in the way that people relate to it vis-a-vis its uh, quickness and availability online. And it's in the fact that it's free, it's so easy to access and, there's a much quicker sensory experience of this erotic medium. So again, it's not necessarily good or bad on its own. There's no moral, I don't want to say this. There's no objective moral um, uh, opinion about porn because everyone's opinions are subjective based on their belief systems. Um, But it's really about how does someone moderate the experience of porn and how do they let it be a, a guide for entertainment, for pleasure? I think where it becomes problematic is when people are looking at it as a source of sex education without other comprehensive sex education 
in the background. And when they're not, you know, really literate when it comes to porn and they don't know how to understand what they're seeing and they don't know that it's fantasy and edited and they're consuming it as if it were reality. And that kind of um, consumption can lead to a lot of misgivings when somebody's then having sex with a partner in real life because there's so much that doesn't translate hmm. in between the medium and, and a human being in person. So they're trying to transpose from the virtual experience onto their physical experience. And when the two don't match up, there's sort of a, uh, a dichotomy there. Yeah. For a lot of folks, they feel broken. They feel like they don't know how to have good sex because they're trying to replicate what they see in porn and it's unrealistic. So then they're with a partner and they either think their partner is bad at sex or they think they are, um, or they are surprised when <laughs> things don't happen the way that they happen in porn. They're surprised when there are noises and smells and, you know, <laughs> things that happen and you're like, oh, whoops. <gasps> I don't bend that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody falls out of bed. That doesn't happen in porn. They edit that part out. Um, people, you know, people get dry, people need more lubrication, people need to take water breaks, that stuff doesn't happen in porn. So it's just really unrealistic. And when people don't have a solid, realistic understanding of sex in real life, it can shape the way they view sex in a way that, you know, takes some unlearning. Hmm. So I didn't hear you say this, but I wanted to sort of paraphrase it in my own head. So I have read a lot of studies around how overusage of pornography has a dramatic deleterious effect, especially on men, not only in their behavior, but their competency, but their ability to maintain erections and their their perspective and their perception of people of of sex in general. So are you saying that from from what and again, I understand it's politically charged, so I, I'm not going to challenge you to it. But are you saying that there it's not necessarily a bad thing for men to watch porn or, or overuse on porn? Or are you saying something different? Well, I'm sorry. So by definition, to overuse means that you've exceeded your own limits, right? Mm -hmm. What's dangerous is for somebody objectively to say, you can watch porn this many times a week and that's mm -hmm. okay because everyone's different, right? I so I think it's a really subjective experience for people to understand for themselves what for me is enough? What's too mm -hmm. much? What mm -hmm. happens when it's quote unquote too much? And why is that a bad thing for me? So for a lot of people um, that I work with who identify as men, they'll say things like, um, you know, I watch porn every day and um, it's impacting my ability to have an erection with my partner. Well, it could be that that's the porn. It could also be that porn is a safe outlet for them that doesn't criticize them, doesn't have any feedback. They don't have to worry about pleasing porn. They don't have to worry about um, whether or not porn's going to be mad that they didn't load the dishwasher. You know, there's all <laughs> kinds of things that porn can give someone that sex with a real partner is going to be different. And it'll be far more complicated because we are human beings that are dimensional. So of mm -hmm. course, there's more psychology that comes with having a two-person mutual experience. Porn doesn't have any demands. So a lot of people may be experiencing difficulties in their primary partnership when it comes to sex and with porn, they don't. So, you know, some people will say, well, it's the porn's fault. Maybe, maybe it's conditioning them to have a certain kind of experience erotically. And also maybe it's an escape path for them to have some sort of erotic experience because their relationship with their partner is more complicated and interrupts their ability to showcase their whole erotic potential. Mm -hmm. Understood. Thanks for clarifying I love that. that. Okay, we can get off porn. 
No, but it's it's like we need to know what our limits are for all things, don't we? When you mm-hmm. sit, whether it's alcohol, whether it's food, what time we need to stop eating at to have a good night's sleep, like all these things that affect our life. And at some point we need to be in touch enough with who we are to to make those those big adult decisions, right? Is it healthy for couples to watch porn together? It can be. <laughs> What are you saying? Nothing, I'm just curious. <laughs> okay, sorry. I have no more porn questions. Yeah, um, like, we, again, it's, 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 like, hmm. it's couple specific. Some couples love it, right? It's such a huge part of their erotic life. And then for other couples, it really becomes a third that gets in the way. Hmm. We were talking about children because we both have kids. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about that for a minute. Okay. So I have a daughter who just turned 16. She has a boyfriend. Oh, he's a nice guy. <laughs> My daughter's always had good friends. She's always surrounded herself with good people. So I trust her discretion on this one. And I've always been very open with my kids about sex. Mm -hmm. I have had the sex conversation with them. We don't hide nudity. We don't, we're not embarrassed about it. It's sort of like, it's just part of life. But I'm not sure if I'm prepared to have a conversation with her as it pertains to sex with her boyfriend. We've only had sex in a an innocuous conversation. Like this is how babies are made. Mm. What sort of conversation, this goes back to the original uh, outside of the call. When you're, do you have children? No. So when you do have your child, uh, let's pretend you do have a child. What would you say to your children to get them prepared for the sex talk now that they're dating as my daughter is now? If I had children and in my work with people when they have kids or, or when I'm working with teens, the, the sex conversation, in my opinion, starts early, right? Mm. With appropriate yes. developmental um, language that helps them understand their body in anatomically correct language so that we're not perpetuating shame or cuteness. I know sometimes parents really balk at that. They don't like it. But it's been demonstrated in the research time and time again that when you teach children the proper words for their body, they take their body more seriously and they have less shame in describing things that are happening that are uncomfortable, which is really important. So talking to your kids really early and then, you know, increasing the complexity with which you help them understand sexuality from things like bodily autonomy and naming their body parts to being able to say no, giving a, a family member a hug if they don't want to, like really encouraging bodily autonomy. That's a form of sex education, even if you're not talking about penetration. Right? And so continuing to enhance and and um, discuss the dimensional aspects of sex and the emotions related to it are really important. Because when you're talking to your kids about it, then they know they can come to you with questions. If they don't feel like that, they're going to make decisions without your input and or they're going to hide things from you and or they're going to trust their other peers who may or may not have any more knowledge about this topic than whatever they saw on Pornhub. Mm. So I think, you know, parents get really squeamish about this conversation, but the earlier and the more in depth you can have it with your kids, the better, because... They want to know, and they're probably going to be like, oh, I don't want to hear it from you, right? But that's okay. You're not there to be their friend. You're there to give them information, and you can point them in the direction of resources that you think are appropriate for them so that they have a really sound secular understanding of how to keep themselves safe and permission to explore what it means to have pleasure. Okay, so I'm your kid. I'm your daughter. I'm 16. <laughs> You've... You need to tell me he needs to start taking care of this then if, if <laughs> your daughter. Yeah. But talk to me really on a, on a high level quickly. Just, what would you say to me? I'm going out on my first date. 
My boyfriend's mm-hmm. picking me up. I'm your daughter. I'm 16. And I'm very attracted to him. Yada, yada. What would you say to me? There's a whole lot of assumed context here, right? And we have to take into consideration each child's unique needs and their, their unique fears. So hopefully this conversation isn't happening as they're running out the door to go potentially have sex with their boyfriend. <laughs> but I would probably, you know, say like, hey, you know, you're probably going to want to start exploring with sexual pleasure and that's okay. Let's talk a little bit about what you know, what questions you have, and what information I can help you understand so that you have all the information you need to be equipped to make decisions that are really informed for you. I'll send you my bill. I'm going to have it in the recording as well. Play so my daughter's listening. <laughs> this, is, this is Aunt Kate. She has something. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just couldn't. That's okay. That's okay. So you want to have a conversation about consent, right? And really making sure that they understand consent is continuous and it's enthusiastic. So what does that mean in terms of ways they can say no? in ways they can say yes. How do they want to communicate that? Um, Do they want to talk to their partner beforehand so that they have conversations about their sexual health status and how they want to use barriers, for example, condoms to protect themselves from unwanted STIs or pregnancy? Um, I would make condoms available to them if if penises are involved or female condoms if they're they're not. Um, Different things like... uh, I don't want to do a plug right now, but there's a a new brand out there that is promoting um, really cool latex underwear so that you can have oral sex safely and fun, right? Wow. So yeah, there's just a lot of really cool options out there to make sure that sex is safer and available so that kids can really be, I should say teens and, and people who are of an appropriate age to be sexual can explore that from a place of not feeling ashamed, not feeling scared. When we equip kids with knowledge, they tend to make smart decisions. Hmm. I love that. Thank you. That was, that was very informative. Can I just ask a, another question? I think, I think we always think that we're right. And <laughs> depending on what relationship we're coming out of, you know, we, you know, we have our story, they have their story or whatever. And what, what would be... What would be the advice that you would give someone as they're possibly coming out of a, a relationship as far as making sure that they're not going to attract the same thing, that they're, they're going to be mm-hmm. attracting something that's better? That's or, or what at what point should someone, instead of coming too late, at what point should someone come? Like a lot of times you think, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm content. I'm just going to live my life. How, how do we know? This is a bunch of questions, actually. How do we know that we need to come to you to to work through things? Come like, to a therapist or mm-hmm, come to a, oh. mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's such a great question. I think when when there are things that are uncomfortable in your life that no matter what you've tried don't seem to be changing, that's a good time to to go start working with a therapist because we all have blind spots. Right? Even the therapists, we're not allowed to do therapy with our immediate family and friends or on ourselves because we have blind spots. The closer we are to a person, the less we can see. And so, you know, when we decide to make changes, working with somebody who is an objective outsider, like a therapist, they can help you see the things in your life that have been holding you back that you haven't been able to see because you're too close to the fire. Um, another thing that can be helpful or another 
reason it might be time is if you feel like you don't know where to start in making changes. You know, sometimes people haven't really tried a bunch of things, but they feel really lost because they don't know even how to take the first step in a new direction because they don't even know what directions exist. And so that can be really helpful to, again, have somebody who's neutral and outside of your immediate life saying, hey, well, let's think this through and here's what could happen if you do this or do that. And what are your fears around this? And they can help you process it in ways that the people close to you can sometimes help you with. But most of the time, people close to you are so biased because they love you. You know, their their ability to help can only go so far. And sometimes their help actually is a hindrance because, you know, they're also invested in their own biases. Mm-hmm. Um, what's got you really excited right now with what you're doing or what's coming out around you, what you're working on? Mm. Well, let's see. I was recently featured on the Secrets of Playboy docuseries, and that's something that was incredibly important to me for so many reasons. But aside from just like the professional cool factor of being able to be involved in such a cool, like a cool project, um, as a survivor of sexual trauma, it was really, really um, amazing for me to be able to help survivors tell their story in such a big way. And um, it's my intention to do more work like that, really helping survivors advocate for themselves and reclaim a life that feels really exciting and vitality filled for themselves. And that includes a hot sex life, however they define it. That's brilliant. So how do we, how do we see that? Um, You can, you can stream it on A&E. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say that's something that I feel really excited about in recent history. And there's a lot of good stuff coming down the pike, but I can't really talk about it yet. <laughs> Dangling carrot. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm not allowed to ask this, but you you mentioned since you're a survivor of sexual trauma, was, was that, that was sort of where I was going in the original question. Was that something that really kind of helped you decide the career path that you went into? Again, I don't think I could have articulated it back then, but in hindsight, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Do you find that you're able to help victims of trauma because Survivor. you have sort of a familiar relationship with it yourself that you're, you're, they're more inclined to, I guess they're more inclined to fall to, to understand since I guess, how am I saying this properly? They're more inclined to have a connection with you since you have a familial bond around that. Um, well, that's not something that I share with, with clients and patients okay, readily okay, right. because that's not the way therapy works. Sure, um, okay. but, but certainly whenever a clinician has had their own connection to something that a client is going through, it can represent opportunities to help them more readily. Sometimes it can increase the kinds of blind spots that we have. So therapists, you know, really do a lot of work to maintain some separateness around their own experience so that they're not, um, overly assumptive about what someone else's experience might be like just because they had one similar. Mm. Okay. I won't go anymore. For <laughs> I know you, I know we're running out of time and you're trying yeah. to close it. I did, I did have a, you were talking about sort of your role and you're not allowed to counsel yourself and family, et cetera. How do you, as a, as a woman, I don't know if you're in a relationship or not, but do men or your partners, potential partners, do they find it intimidating that you're, 
you know, you have these advanced degrees in psychology, so you're going to be understand the psychosis around every situation. You're a sex therapist, so there's like a standard they think. Like, does that ever get in the way of sort of your life and your role? It can, yeah, yeah, it can. There can be um, a lot of projections and intimidation that can come from that, or there's sort of like a, there's a, a, a faction of men who will say things who who sort of look at it as like a trophy to get, you know, if I can bang the sex therapist and that means something about me. So there's, you know, all kinds of objectification that can happen when people learn about my profession, but it's, it's a really helpful strategy to immediately discern if someone will be a good fit for me or not. That's fine. So you'd be able to have that conversation. Like I'm trying to get rid of that with my kid. You have to pull them aside. So let's sit down and have this conversation. <laughs> I re- this has been a fantastic conversation. Any hot seat questions you want to ask? Um, five top sexual fantasies. I saw something on your, um, I think it was your TikTok. Mm-hmm. I don't have are you one. on TikTok? I am yeah. on TikTok. Yeah. So I know, she's, I know she's you are. like but, big no. on TikTok. You, but you're not on TikTok. Not really, you? no. Sorry. I'm just, no. no. Um, gosh. Let's see. I'm going on the end of a 10 hour day. So Sorry. I I'll remember them all. <laughs> Just make something up. We'll believe you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot of the things that, that feel familiar to me are things like BDSM. Um, you know, lots of people have fantasies around power play. Um, they have fantasies around group sex, i.e. threesomes, foursomes, moresomes, um, uh, gender bending ideas. So uh, wanting to experience what it's like to live in the, in the, other sort of gender, whatever that might be, something other than how someone identifies. Um, even things like voyeurism, exhibitionism, those sort of taboo boundary areas are always interesting for folks. I think that's the end of what my my brain can come up with for right that's now. That's a lot. That's a lot. Lisa wants me to wear a dragon costume. Where does that come from? Not just you know, everybody's got their thing. Don't shame yeah. it. <laughs> Anything else? No, that was fantastic. Doctor, I really appreciate your time. This was a fun podcast. Thank this you for so shimmering our questions. We were kind of all over the place, but mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of curious stuff that we were, we were excited about getting you on the show. So, yeah, thank you both. Thank all you. right, take care. Bye.